Amen. When I hear that song, when I sing that song, oftentimes it reminds me to when I first uh, became familiar with it. I believe it was at a conference, and a smaller conference, and uh, they were singing that, we were singing that, and I believe Richard Owen Roberts was going to preach, Steve Lawson, Votie Bauckham, and um, just amazed by some of the preaching that God used in my life at that particular moment, particular time, and with that particular hymn as well. Second Peter, we find ourselves in in chapter 1 for this evening, <clears throat> and remind us where we are before we go to um, where we're going. Second Peter, chapter 1, let's look at that. <clears throat> Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We find here the foundations of godliness, of God's grace, in these first uh, several verses. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, and our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So we have several points that we made before, or that I made before, in the last two times we met together uh, looking at 2 Peter, we're reminded in verse 1 and 2 to know who you are. Know who you are in Christ. Before we must know what we must do as a Christian, we must know who we are. And secondly, know what you have received. Know what you have received in Jesus Christ. And thirdly, know the living God. We need to know the living God, and that is an ongoing pursuit, a pursuit of the Holy One, our entire Christian life. And in verse 3 and 4, we have the divine gift, the divine promises, and then the departure and escape from what we were and who we were and what we too are to avoid and what we are to embrace. Now, as we consider who we are in Jesus Christ, we take these next few verses and say, what then can we do? Or what virtues ought to be and must be represented in our life because of what Christ has made us? So first, know the root. Know the root. Faith. Faith. We are partakers of the divine nature. And we know the one true God and he knows us. Now, because of these things, verse 5, or for this reason also, because of this, live like this. 
live like this. Let these virtues, these eight virtues that we'll see, where we'll lean on more than some than, than the other, others, but live like this. Let these virtues, they must be evident in your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his sermon on verse 5 through 7 said the following, The order in which these things are put is something which is absolutely vital. Not the order of the virtues. The apostle does not ask us to do anything until he has first of all emphasized and repeated what God has done for us in Christ. The Christian gospel in the first instance does not ask us to do anything. It first of all proclaims and announces to us what God has done for us. And since that indeed is the case, for this reason, apply all diligence in your faith. Supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and so on, as we will see. For this reason, what reason? Again, verse 1 through 4, for that reason, for what God has done, for what he has made us, because of this, these descriptions make every effort, as the NIV says, every effort to add to your faith. Not faith, faith plus works equals salvation. It is by faith alone. But make every effort Christian in your faith to press on. All of these virtues are to be found in you. They are to describe you in your effort after you have been justified by faith. All of us in here who are Christians know that once we are converted, that does not mean we just get to to hang out and that everything is going to be just uh, skipping through the daisies, that everything is just going to be absolutely fine. We know indeed that is not the case. We have to press on. We have to... uh, Keep our shoulder to the plow. This word faith is the same word used in verse 1 of chapter 1, where we are. To those who have received a faith. Remember, faith and the ability to repent is a gift from God. We cannot do either of those initially for salvation unless God has called us unless God has elected us and then he enables us to respond to him in faith and repentance. This personal faith as we call it, this faith you have received, a faith that if indeed is true of you, these virtues will be manifest and will be increasing in your life. As Luther said, prove your faith by your works. You know the saying, the proof is in the pudding. Right? Luther says, prove your faith by your works. Grace precedes demand, and once we are saved by grace, we must apply all diligence in the Christian life. Holiness is grounded in the work of salvation accomplished by Jesus Christ. Now that you have been saved by grace, you are called to active duty. There is no reserves. We do not go uh, 
and stay on the sidelines. We are called to active duty continually. You have been put on the, the team, as it were. Now you must fight the good fight to win. Because of the new birth, now you must live this way. In your faith. Faith being the root of the Christian life. Consider some texts this evening. I almost said morning. This evening. I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 11, Ephesians chapter 2, and James chapter 1. I'm just going to read these, maybe make a comment or two. If you're fast enough to turn, you can turn. If not, then just sit tight, but don't get too rested and weary. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through 3, thinking of the root, faith being the root. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. We could read this whole chapter, we won't, this evening. But if we want to know more about faith, we say, okay, let's go to Hebrews chapter 11 and be reminded. Reminded of that. And then we go to Ephesians. Remember Ephesians, who we are in Jesus Christ. Doctrine and then duty. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, 9, familiar text for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, but we are, and we are created for what? For his workmanship. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So there will be, as in a result, there will be fruit. There will be works that are produced because of this faith, this root in our lives. And in James chapter 1, verse 3, another familiar text. Well, let's look at verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You want endurance and perseverance in the Christian life? In time, the testing of your faith will produce that. Since, faith, since this faith is yours, these virtues in 2 Peter are to be described of you. We ought to ooze these virtues. We ought to look like this. This should be us. Bunyan says, the soul of religion is the practical part. The soul of religion is the practical part. So faith is not separated from these virtues. We are not saved by these virtues, we understand. But we are to strive to add these things. In other words, to, to live them out. There, are no, there is no sloth allowed. In Christianity. Sloth, that poor cute animal, gets a bad rap, but it, there's no, we cannot be a sloth in our walk with the Lord. Eight virtues found here. This is a specific literary form, but it is a chain that finishes in a climactic way. 
However, these are not building blocks. They do not build on top of one another. Instead, they are linked like a chain. If they were built upon one another, if we saw it that way, we could easily fall into the error of believing we had to master one level before the next. Kind of, as I read, a Benjamin Franklin type of um, thinking to where you have these eight virtues and you've got to master this one completely before you can move on to the next one. Well, uh, try to master any of these fruits and any of these virtues completely in itself is going to be a lifelong sanctifying work. So it's not a building block. We don't master one level before we go to the next, or like Mario Brothers, or whatever it may be. Example would be, well, I cannot have self-control. I'm still at knowledge. Once I get knowledge down, then I'll have self-control. It doesn't work like that. Yet, at the same time, the beginning and the end are significant. Faith, the roots, moral excellence, and at the end we see love. So indeed, those are um, significant. In your faith, supply moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And Romans 5 says something for us as well. I'll just briefly look at that. Romans 5, verse 1 through 5. We see this pressed on us by the Apostle Paul. Peter presses it on us. Apostle Paul says, therefore, Romans 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, there's the faith again, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, that does not change. Through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And not only in this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And here's the trigger. Perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, presses on this as well. A little different, but we get the point. Tom Schreiner reminds us, it seems significant that the chain begins with faith and ends with love. Faith is the root of all virtues, and love is the goal and climax of the Christian life. Have not love, what are we, right? Otherwise, we should not press the order nor the mastering of of one before moving on to the next one. Again, they're linked like a chain. So we have these, but first we have to know the roots. Faith. Secondly, growing upward and outward. In your faith, supply moral excellence or goodness or virtue. This word supply in the New Testament times was used of making rich or lavish provision. Richly add moral excellence, making every effort to add moral excellence requires seriousness. It requires the Holy Spirit and it requires 
a God-given zeal and a pressing on in the pursuits of personal holiness. Moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. Knowledge is something we've gone over several times recently. Knowing God. Press on to know His will. Knowledge of God is the start, right? It's also the, the continuing part of, the li- of life and the goal of the Christian life. Knowing God. Progressive, increasing growth and a knowledge of God and His ways will prevent uselessness, unfruitfulness, and sloth. The sloth, once again. So we have this growing upward and outward in your faith supply moral excellence in your moral excellence knowledge and in your knowledge self-control this one is the third point and this is where we're going to spend some time this is really i I called it that for our third point the epicenter self-control the epicenter self-control self-control widely used phrase but not always widely practiced temperance or moderation now when we say moderation we have to be careful with how we use it i try to avoid blanket statements in my life um, all you always do this or always do that um, it's better to say in a practical level of speaking sometimes this sometimes that it seems most times this happens not always uh, when people say anything in moderation Anything in moderation. No, that's not true. You can't take crack in moderation. Seriously. You cannot do things that are harmful like that in moderation and it'd be okay. Temperance. Moderation. This self-control, it is a fruit of the Spirit. That's why we read that in Galatians chapter 5. Paul also says something in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I invite you to turn there for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Just going to make a, read this, maybe make a comment. Maybe not. 1 Corinthians 9.24. <clears throat> do you know or do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Christian, run that way. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Consider an athlete. When I think of this boxing, I think of boxers and all that they go through. Boxing is a brutal sport. I'm not advocating for it. But if you watch the shape and the conditioning boxers have to get into in order to to win and to do well it is uh, it's their life 
It is their, this wreath that they are seeking a, that will perish. But the discipline and the diligence that goes into such a thing. And we look at that and we say, spiritually speaking, what diligence and discipline are we to have as, as Christians, spiritually? Disciplining our body and make it my slave. So that nothing would be a master over me. Self-control as the manifestation of the Spirit's work in man. Resulting in the human activity Paul speaks of in Romans 8. He says, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Self-control is one of the qualifications for a church leader as well. And that is the aim for all believers in Titus chapter 1. And self-control is closely related to gentleness. So with self-control, there is restraint. Riken says this, a person with self-control has the restraint and self-discipline not to be ruled by passion, therefore is able to resist temptation, specifically in matters of eating, drinking, and sexuality. Now we look at those things. Those are main things, main areas that uh, exercising restraints is crucially important. But there are many other areas as well. Tom Schreiner again, he says, those who live a godly life exercise self-discipline and are able to restrain themselves so that they do not capitulate to sinful desires. Well, where does this restraint and self-discipline that they, that they mention come from? Well, this is from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit applied effort in our lives in contrast to a work of the flesh. In contrast to saying, I can do this on my own. No, you can't. And no, you won't. We must be yielded and relying on the reliance on the Spirit of God. I've been reading several books recently. One called, um, it's not The Pilgrim's Progress, it's A Pilgrim's Regress by Mark Jones. Excellent book. It's about how avoiding apostasy and backsliddenness in a Christian's life. And then I got the trifecta by him. I think I mentioned that before. And then he has another book called Knowing Sin. Excellent. Read Knowing God, then read Knowing Sin. Very balanced approach. And then I've been reading John Owen as well a little while ago. uh, He has a book, Temptation Resisted and Repulsed by John Owen. And you can read that in the updated English. encourage you to do so. He says... When sin knocks at the door, we are at liberty. But when a temptation comes in and we allow it to speak with our heart, reason with our mind, entice and allure our affections for a long or short time, then sin subtly subtly and almost imperceptibly draws our soul to take particular notice of it. 
And then we enter into temptation. So in order to exercise self-control, we are not to do exposure therapy to certain things. Exposure therapy, if you may know, it's a way of um, trying to gain control of a fear in your life by slowly exposing yourself to it, uh, whether it be certain type of um, creature that you do not want to be around, whether it be heights, things like this, and you slowly, incrementally expose yourself to that in order to say, hey, this is, uh, this is better or I feel more comfortable here now. It's a pretty effective technique, actually. But nevertheless, we don't do that with, uh, with our lives, with, with sin, saying, okay, I'm going to expose myself slowly and slowly to it to where I'm comfortable with it. No, the opposite is true. We say, I see it, now I must remove myself from walking in that way or from diving into that sin which is describing me or could be part of my past and I see it again in my my mind or in my heart. So self-control, at times there is the radical amputation of plucking out the eye, right? As Jesus said. John Owen, he says this as well, Um, as far as temptation, he says, it is like leprosy, or yeah, it's like leprosy that has infected a building. Well, he says before that, you'll never conquer the temptation until the lust has been killed. It is like leprosy that has infected a building. If you're going to make progress, Christian, you must deal with lust itself. Now, when we think lust, oftentimes we go right to sensual type things. It does not have to mean that. It does not have to be that. You must address your, uh, your ambition. We could have a, a lust after this ambition or, or a pride or worldliness or whatever it may be that a temptation is united to. The lust must die or the soul must die, says John Owen. Also, some more of the possible respectable sins, as we would think, come from a lack of self-control. Because the opposite of self-control is self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. I'll give examples. And these were just popped in my mind, so... Overeating. Overeating is one to where the opposite of self-control is self-indulgence. And we all can be guilty of this. I can be guilty of this. You put a bunch of chocolate chip cookies that are soft and homemade in front of me. It's going to be very difficult for me to exercise self-control. Overstimulating the mind with whatever it may be, electronically usually, right? Overstimulating the mind to where we can't focus. Or what I call the zombie scroll. We're relaxing now. What do we do? We get out our phone. We scroll. And we become like just zombies. Self-indulging. Self-control in our speech as well. The opposites of self-control in our speech, refraining from saying something we want to say, and then say, well, I didn't mean to say that. Yes, we did. It was out of our heart, and we said it. Unless we misspoke and said, well, I didn't mean to call you that. I meant you to call you this. 
instead, or say this, which is even worse, or whatever. The opposite of um, self-control in our speech is, is lashing out or, or cruel in our speech. Speaking in such a way is setting a forest on fire, as James says. Remember the phrase, sticks and stones? Well, I adjusted it. Sticks and stones will break your bones in harsh words and sinful speech will destroy you. And noises like that will freak me out. (laughs) I didn't know if that was the ceiling or someone. I didn't know what that was. Anyway, I'm officially like broken in now as a New Englander. I fell on the ice today, tonight in the parking lot out there. Got my hand really good. Spidey-like reflexes, so I didn't hit my face. So, see, when you're still young, you can do things like that. So, it's a catch your fall. But yeah, it was uh, uh, happened so fast. I'm definitely feeling. I will feel it tomorrow. So I feel it now. Nevertheless, I don't know how I got there, but I think it was this guy who just made me sweat for a moment. Verbal abuse. Sticks and stones will break your bones, and harsh words and sinful speech will hurt and destroy you. Verbal abuse, murder of the mouth. But self-controlled we are to be in action, refraining from action, refraining from doing something, right? That's self-control. Or taking an action in in a self-controlled way in what we say or what we could say, but we don't. That's the real hard one at times, isn't it? When we, I don't want to say this so bad, but we don't. Or I want to respond so bad. I want to say this, but we don't. We refrain from action. We refrain from, from saying this or, or hurting or, or doing something physically or whatever it may be. And oftentimes, it's about the approach with self-control, too. It's, it's how we say things and what we do not say as well. It's interesting, as I was studying this in 2 Peter, that self-control is contrasted with the way of false prophets in chapter 2. So if you look at chapter 2, just briefly, of 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 2, Many will follow their, sensu- follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And these false prophets, verse 10, they were uh, what is called soft living, especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. In verse 13, suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel, excuse me, to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Verse 14, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. That's their ongoing way of living. Enticing unstable, unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Verse 19, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves to corruption and in 20 verse 
20 verse tw- um, through 22. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than for having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has, been hap- it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit. And a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. Self-control. With our self-control, we are to press in and press on. Press in and press on. In your self-control, there is perseverance or endurance. Perseverance. Or endurance. These two are contrasted with uh, some virtues that we do not want to be uh, mentioned of us, and that's in chapter two as well. Perseverance. We want to view time as in God's eyes. Chapter three, verse eight. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. And we'll look at more into what that means. But God's timing is always perfect and it is always right. Our timing, not so much. Right? We persevere because we know God's timing is perfect. We know that he's the one who calls time. We know that he's the one that, that will, he knows and he has it fixed when we individually will take our last breath on this earth and arrive in glory. Continuing in the faith, persevering, resisting the wiles of the world and of the evil one. John Owen again, he says, always remember, as we consider these virtues and perseverance, always remember Satan's purpose and sin's purpose in temptation. It is to dishonor it's the dishonoring of God and the ruin of our souls. He says, consider the outcome of any former temptation that you have had to grapple with. Have they not defiled your conscience, disquieted your peace, weakened your obedience, and, and clouded the face of God? He says, would you ever be willingly entangled again? Think of that. Think of something that you have a road you have gone down or a place you have gone before, a way you have fallen before, a sin that has described you as a Christian for for a season, for a time, and God gave you victory, and you say, no way, no how. Do I want to go there again? I want to persevere, Lord. Help me to endure, Lord, so that I do not see that once again. I do not want to get entangled once again. Continuing on in perseverance and godliness and, and holiness in your perseverance, godliness. Chapter 3, verse 4. No, that's not right. Verse 11. Since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, speaking of the, uh, the heaven, new heavens and a new earth, 
what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now let's, let's get some practical thinking on this as well. But we're in 2024. Um, this is going to be an interesting year, very likely, in many ways. Um, and I think we all understand why, in a lot of ways, and the things going on in this nation. Um, and so when I think of a certain phrase, and I think of the, us as Christians, be our holy conduct and godliness standing firm and being ready to fight, spiritually speaking, for the Lord and taking courage, that needs to be our disposition. Because Satan has many black swans up his sleeve for us. You say, what is that? You can look it up, and I'm using an analogy as for Satan. These are things that we know are going to happen, very likely are going to happen, and the enemy has these things up his sleeve that he would like to set before us as believers to, to trip us up, or as a church to trip us up, or prevent us, or make us do one thing or the other to try to, to ruin us. Fifthly, as we consider these virtues that must be named among us. And we look at these virtues, we step back and we say, you know what, we, we struggle with these. And we do. None of us have arrived on any of these. It's a work in progress by the, the Spirit working in us. And we may have uh, knowledge in one area, we may have self-control in one area, in a lot of areas, and maybe one area not so much. And perseverance, may we persevere very strongly by God's grace for a time. And then there's times when uh, we don't. I'm like, wow, I'm not persevering like I should. But fifthly, we're to have this visible care as well. Visible care. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness. This is the type of kindness that is really only found in believers. And I'll add to that, that should be found in all believers. This Philadelphia love, this brotherly love, affection among believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, stronger bonds than blood relatives. Now, if we have blood relatives that are Believers, strong believers, we have, a, we have a great strong bond, normally speaking. But our brothers and sisters in Christ, and specifically, we take that even within the local church, these should be our strongest relationships that we have. Because we're united in Jesus Christ. And we ought to show brotherly love and kindness towards one another. And not be kinder or show a, a false kindness, a real, genuine, brotherly kindness to our brothers and sisters in Christ. As first Peter chapter one, verse twenty-two says, um, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Remember this? We went through it. I don't remember, but we went through it fervently love one another from the heart. 
Well, I thought our hearts were deceitful beyond all else. Absolutely. But he has changed our heart as well. And he has given us a new disposition in our heart and in our lives. He's given us the ability to love God. And he has given us the ability and the duty to love one another as Christians ought to. Fervently love one another from the heart. Hebrews tells us in chapter 13, let love of the brethren continue. It's an ongoing love. It's not a love, okay, I loved that person at one point in time and I showed them brotherly love and now I really don't care. It's an ongoing. And Romans 12, this one is a, I, well, it's all powerful, but this one really stuck out in my mind and reminded me of a recent conversation. Romans chapter 12, verse 10, just read it for you. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Well, let me read the verse before it, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Okay, this brotherly love, this love that we are to have as Christians, let it be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Now, if we want to be honest here, which we should always want to be honest, that's not always easy to do, to give preference to one another in honor. I was talking to someone recently. They were seeking counsel. They sought counsel from someone, and they said, um, and, then some, and then some counsel for me, and they said, well, this individual very nicely usually focuses on the good in people. And I said, well, I usually am more pessimistic, and I focus on the worst in the situation. So therefore, you have both sides of the, the, the story, or both sides. You can look at both things, and, and somewhere in the middle is probably uh, what's right, is what I said. But I ought not to think that way, right? It ought to be have preference for one another. In honor, we're to think well unless something tells us, well, this is not well and with something needs to be dealt with. But having this preference for one another, it's like continually, the illustration, as men, we should always open the door for a lady and continually doing that, having that mindset of you go first, spiritually speaking. In our Christian lives. No, you first. Even on fellowship meals. Remind me of that. when You let a few people go first, right? You get in the middle and you say, okay, I'm good. I let five people go. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's just trying to lighten it up a little bit. And brotherly kindness, love. Brotherly kindness, love. These go together. Brotherly kindness and love. Edwin Bloom says the knowledge of God issues into the love of other believers. A warmth of affection that should characterize the fellowship of believers. Self-sacrificing in action in behalf of another. The love flows from God who is himself love. And a love that reaches the world. Godly people who participate in divine nature must abound in love. All of these virtues take effort. 
take discipline, take prayer. They don't come usually easy. Sometimes people are more gifted in certain ways of serving or helping one another or just have a disposition of being really kind for some reason, and that's wonderful. But sometimes we really have to, to pray and work at these. And it's, I learned something early on in my Christian walk. It's, it's hard to be angry with someone that you're praying for. You know, someone who has really done you wrong and you pray for that person. Could be years ago and you pray for them. Apply and supply. Look at those adjectives or verbs, excuse me. Knowledge, work, effort, prayer, growth, experience. Knowledge takes effort. Goals of perseverance, the goal, the finish line. Right? We know as Christians we're getting there. We're getting there. But the goal is how do we get there as, as Christians? What does that look like in our, in our race? And this walk that we have. Remember the gate? We can know people by their gate, the way that they walk. We're to walk in holiness and godliness and kindness. Actions and at times not reacting. Showing this kindness. It is visible when someone is kind. And love, that's visible as well. And it is felt and it is understood. And we see, and we'll end on this, verse 8 and 9. For if these qualities are yours, and Lord willing, we'll look at these verses next time. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we say those, the opposite of those words. What do we want to be? We, we leave this place this night. We go about our week by the Holy Spirit's power. We want to be useful and fruitful for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So we look at these virtues and we say, you know, this one here I really need to work on, or the Holy Spirit has convicted me on one of this, maybe this kindness I lack in, or whatever it is. Then we deal with that as well. Amen? Uh, Robert will come up, lead us in our last hymn, and I will close us in prayer.